uh, aside, because I'm worried that uh, this episode won't go terribly long, um, you you saw First Cow recently. I loved First Cow. Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, a pop culture podcast that is normally about connecting academic ideas with popular media, but tonight is simply about Pete allowing me to indulge all of my just completely uh, completely personal and emotional whims. <laughs> and, and to be fair, it is about Martha allowing me to do the exact same thing, uh, because this is an episode we've been talking about doing for a while as a peer uh labor of love more than anything else but before we get into that well, we haven't even said what it is <laughs> <laughs> that we introduce ourselves uh i am martha sullivan librarian and eternal virtual farmer and i am here as always with my co-host uh, i am pete romberg uh curriculum developer and uh back on my animal crossing nonsense uh, you're in the stardew valley world i'm in the animal crossing world yeah, I really have been mainlining Stardew Valley in like a serious business way. There's every time I think about doing other stuff, I'm just like, but what if I played just one more day? I'm truly <laughs> nervous about rebooting Stardew Valley for precisely that reason. I don't reboot it. I just start a new save every time I think about doing something different. Mm -hmm. I do think I'm finally so I'm on my third iteration. And I think I've finally because like every time I learn a new thing, my instinct is to start over sure. with that new piece of information and also a huge patch for it just dropped. So oh, no, see, that's the kind of information that I can't know. Well, and it's all late game stuff. Like it's all stuff that you get access to after you finish the community center. Oh no. Which I've never done before, but oh. I'm only, I'm one item away. All I need is a rabbit's foot. <laughs> and I am. I, I'm in. <laughs> by the time I stopped playing Stardew Valley, my farm was a masterwork of modern automation. Uh, and oh, yeah. nobody wants to water those plants. Yeah, yeah. And like I, I, it was it was very impeccably laid out. Looked beautiful. I'd gotten the community center all built up, and I was kind of just like, eh, I can keep getting richer. I don't want to go into like the desert dungeon because it's scary and i die all the time so <laughs> no, that just means you need better rings and weapons see this i feel like i've finally gotten into a groove where i'm like i got it now i know <laughs> i have a direction but anyway this is not a stardew valley podcast yet um, tune in next week <laughs> <laughs> today uh today we are dedicating an entire episode to discussing the wide and wonderful world of his dark materials we will be talking the original trilogy we will be talking the original movie we will be talking about the second so far two books eventually will be three uh and the hbo adaptation recently finished uh with season two so i am just going to put down right now before we talk about anything else a huge spoiler alert mm-hmm if any of these things are things that you care about experiencing in a pure way, put this episode on hold, come back when you're done. Nothing is off limits for our later conversation. Yes. But before we get into it, um, we will be talking about what's stuck in our heads this week. Um, 
Mine is not Stardew Valley, even though I can be <laughs> tricked into talking about that in depth uh, at the drop of the hat. But uh, Pete, what is stuck in your head this week? So my uh, one of my usual D&D groups, the one that I DM for, is on a uh, baby-related hiatus. One of my players just had uh, his first kid, uh, which is very exciting. And so we're, we're taking a bit of a break from that. But the remaining players um, still want to do something with the, the, you know, intervening time. So I'm running a couple one-shots of various different games. And the first one that I'm, uh, I'll be running in a few days... I'm very excited to run, I've never done it before, is called Lasers and Feelings, which is a very simple one-page tabletop role-playing game. Uh, Like, the rules for everyone fits on a single 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. Uh, And it's Star Trek flavored. You are, you know, you're not in the Federation, you're in the Consortium. But it's the same sort of idea. Um, Basically, you have one stat, it's one number, uh, 2 through 5. A higher number means you're better at lasers, and a lower number means you're better at feelings. That's your, uh, Spock is your lasers and Kirk is your feelings. Um, you roll dice. If you're trying to roll lasers, you want to roll below your number. If you want feelings, you want to roll above your number. Uh, all of this is to say that I've been consuming a lot more Star Trek content recently than I normally would, and I, uh created a visual for my players, like a quick and, and simple rule guide and, and character sheet and all the rest of it, which I am incredibly, uh, I'm tooting my own horn because I'm very impressed with my own graphic design skills on it. I made it look like the next-gen computer monitors, uh, and I'm really excited for Thursday when I get to show it to them, and uh, we get to play some lasers and feelings. Uh, so the Adventure Zone boys did a couple of special live episodes where they ran lasers and feelings it's possible that i learned about this game from one of those it's hysterical Mm -hmm. (laughs) the second episode of that is my favorite episode that they have ever made of anything ever wow because the last arc of uh balance was very good the last arc of balance isn't even my favorite arc of balance Mm. i mean balance as a whole was oh yeah very good for sure yeah um so what is stuck in my head, um, I watched a perfect movie over the weekend. It is a Taika Waititi written and directed film that came out in, I believe, 2019 called oh, no, The really? Hunt for the Wilder People. Sorry, and, my, my, uh, oh, my own. 2016. Oh, no. Good. Sorry. That makes me feel a whole lot better. I, <laughs> I, I believed you and just thought it was a case of like time has no meaning now. No, it came out in 2016. Um, it is about a 13-year-old boy played uh, by... Is he played by Jojo Rabbit? No. Okay. Jojo Rabbit's a white kid. I, I have not seen Hunt for the Wilder People. Okay. No, this guy is a a, a larger um, person Sing- of color. Mm. I, I He's a... It, Okay, so it's about 13-year-old Ricky Baker, who is an orphan in foster care. He gets bumped around to a bunch of different foster homes, and he finally ends up at a home that is run by a lovely woman and her husband, Cranky Sam Neal. Mm, great. Events transpire that cause Ricky to think that he might be taken from this family, and they are the first people that he has ever really like come to feel affection for, and like gotten along with and wanted to stay with. Uh, so he and Cranky Sam Neal es- 
run away basically into the New Zealand brush <laughs> and are then on the run from child protective services. It's so funny. I cried four times. It's truly, truly a perfect movie. And by the end, I just, I felt so good. Like it made my heart happy and the characters are so good. And this kid is great. And Sam Neill has a full beard and is introduced in the movie, carrying a giant boar across his shoulders. It's it's amazing. It's on Netflix. Please watch it. <laughs> I'm uh, literally right now adding it to my movies to watch list. Yes. My mom has spent the last four years trying to get me to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm really bummed that it took me this long to actually sit down and do it because truly, truly a 10 out of 10. Hmm. Nice. Yes. Uh, I mean, you had me with Taika Waititi and then you doubly had me with uh, Cranky Sam Neill. So. I love Sam Neill so <laughs> much. And watching this, you're like, I bet this is what he's actually like. He's like a pig farmer slash vineyard owner in either Australia or New Zealand. I don't remember which. His, New his, Zealand. His Twitter uh, feed is very good. Is so, Yes. I, I would love to get my hand on some of his wine just to be like, it's Sam Neill's wine. <laughs> um. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to spend the next 12 to 18 hours talking about his dark material. Two days, conservatively. Yes. And we are back. So for today's episode, Pete and I decided that at this point, we have our, our cup runneth over with content for his dark materials. And it is such a um, significant property that has played a pretty, I think it's fair to say has played a pretty large role in both of our pop culture consuming lives that we decided, you know what, we have enough stuff here Let's just go whole hog and and dedicate an entire episode to it. So what do we mean when we say the His Dark Materials panoply of <laughs> products? Uh, the, the Dark Materials verse? <laughs> yes. Um, so first we have His Dark Materials, the original trilogy, which was initially published in 19... 19- So the first book, um, The Northern Lights in the UK, The Golden Compass in North America, was published in 1995. Follow-up was The Subtle Knife, published in 1997, and concluded in 2000 with The Amber Spyglass. Uh, These books tell the story of Lyra and eventually Will, two uh, preteens who are essentially trying to save the world from a... uh, religious base or from a religious organization um that eventually by the end of it have killed god and torn down the kingdom of heaven Mm -hmm. uh that's a little bit reductive because a lot of stuff happens in those books uh but essentially we are talking about two teens who 
reenact Paradise Lost, and also there are witches and armored bears. It rules. <laughs> uh, and a very subtle knife that cuts through anything, including universes. Because uh, universes. we got the multiverse happening here. We do. Then we have... Well, I, I would say maybe the most... Oh. One of the most um, iconic parts of this series is the fact that uh, in Lyra's world, everyone has a daemon or demon, which is your basically your spirit or your, your consciousness uh, given manifest form. Um, and we will talk much more about those as this conversation continues. But that's just we, one of the the key yes. points, I think, of this of this work. Next, in 2007, Chris White's attempted to adapt the Golden Compass into a film that was initially supposed to kick off a trilogy franchise. This movie starred Nicole Kidman, Daniel Craig, Dakota Blue Richards, a bunch of other people, and it flopped real hard. Mm hmm. We will also come back around to that. Next, we have a follow-up trilogy, the first two books of which are now available. Uh, La Belle Sauvage, which takes place before the events of The Golden Compass and tells a story about Lyra as a baby being saved by a 12-year-old boy named Malcolm during a flood that takes over Oxford, which is Lyra's hometown. Uh, this has been followed up with The Secret Commonwealth in 2019, which skips forward in time and revisits Lyra as a 20-year-old, so about seven years after the events of the original His Dark Materials trilogy. And this new trilogy is being called The Book of Dust, which tells you sort of what its focus is about and why Pullman uh, has come back to revisit it. Yes, Dust is a, a it force in these books that is kind of the driving plot device. It is certainly the gear on which most of these plots turn. Mm -hmm. um, much of the original trilogy stems, much of the plot from the original trilogy stems from the church's attempt to find and eradicate dust and Lyra's attempts to prevent that from, from happening and the reader kind of learning progressively what dust is and what it means to people. Um, we find out eventually not a whole lot, um, except that dust is kind of the force of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It is certainly uh, related to consciousness. Yes. Uh, and then finally, we have the most recent adaptation, uh, which is the HBO series, which has just finished the second season. Uh, this so far has been a fairly faithful adaptation of the first two books uh, and will be um, encompassing one final season of television to wrap up the third, the story from the third book. So that's a real quick overview. <laughs> As you were describing that, I'm like, oh, God, this episode is going to be three hours long. <laughs> um, there's a lot happening. Um, there's there's so much I want to talk about. Uh, yes. So I would like to first talk about and I'm going a little bit out of order for the list that I sent you earlier of all the things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> the first thing I would like to talk about is yours and my relationship to this material. Mm. How did you, what was your first exposure to it? What role has this played? We have Who actually, our demons are. I do believe that we have talked about the Golden Compass in, con, in the context of some kind of formative media. Or mm -hmm. no. Um, yes. I don't know. I, We've talked about the Golden Compass. So I have had a chance to kind of talk about how important these books have been to me. 
since they first came out. When you were listing off when the books were published, I was astonished at how young I was. Um, so for me, I read The Golden Compass. I'm pretty sure I bought it. You know how there used to be like a... Uh, the place that, like, maybe now it's a Starbucks, like, the, it used to be a Coconuts Records on uh, Harlem oh, yeah. and Oak Park Avenue. Like, a, way, way, way back in the day, it used to be, like, a Hallmark bookstore or something. It used to be a bookstore before Borders moved in. Um, mm -hmm. This is very exciting audio content for the people who didn't grow up in Oak Park in the 90s. Um, I have a very strong memory of buying the Golden Compass at that bookstore, probably based purely on the cover. Um, loving it. Buying the Subtle Knife, which had a remarkably horrible cover, uh, <laughs> and not having the Amber Spyglass out yet. This was the first media I can recall waiting for the next installment and yes. waiting um, uh, not not patiently, I don't think. <laughs> uh, I also strongly remember this is maybe the first media that I got that I checked out from the library and had to be delivered from another library. Um, I, I distinctly recall it was a situation where like, oh, it's checked out at the Oak Park Public Library, but Berwyn or wherever has it. And so they shipped it over, um, as libraries do. Uh, but this was my first experience of that. And I have a very strong memory of reading The Amber Spyglass and just, uh, being blown away by it. Um, it's incredible. It's moving. It grapples with crazy ideas. And the fact that you said it came out in, two, in the year 2000, uh, so I was at most 12, maybe 11, maybe 12, uh, just makes it all the more astonishing. Yeah, I definitely, I read, um, I did not start reading them until The Subtle Knife was already out, because I read mm -hmm. one and two in close succession, and then also had to wait um, for number three. And looking at the publication dates. Only they're only being three years in between the subtle knife and the amber spyglass is kind of wild to me because I remember that as being like an interminable wait. <laughs> yes, yes. And now we live in a world with Jay with um George Martin. So, you know, <laughs> what did I even know then? Right. Um, but yeah, I did not know that books could do something like this. Yes, yes. Um, I even now so many of the things that I'm fascinated by in like the world and in literature, I think you can draw a very direct line from my reading these books to my interest in like the weird parts of theology. I was just thinking, example. I am certain this kicked off my interest in like world religions and comparative religions and all the rest of it. And these books are absolutely like, it causes me physical distress to think about the fact that these books are not real. <laughs> um, and, and part of that is this part of that is the, um, the story hook of your soul being an outside force that can like talk to and interact with you and tell you something about yourself, like just by existing. Mm -hmm. Like that is such a smart plot device. Um, and it, it makes it's it, a it's so good for like instant world building b it's so good for instant character building there's a line or like a mention in the golden compass about how like 
A lot of soldiers have dogs as their demons, and it's partly because, like, you know, they can be fierce guard dogs, but also because soldiers take orders, and dogs are hierarchical. So, like, if you have a dog as a demon, you might think that kind of way. Um, as an adult, there are some weird things about how deterministic the demons can be. Like, one of the things that, now thinking about it as a grown-up, particularly in the time that we live in right now, like... Your your demon is always the opposite gender of you. Well, not and, always. Usually, and that okay, so we'll, we'll and, get into the secret across, commonwealth across but. five books. It happens once, right? And it's a throwaway moment. I I mean, we'll get into this. One of the things I liked about the secret commonwealth was how it plays with sort of the. Like, he introduces the norms of human-demon relationships in the original trilogy, and now he is showing the the non-normed cases. Um, which, we, we'll get into that later when we talk about it, but I, I thought it was interesting to see, to see that. Um, but yeah, just, like, when I think about... When I think about the stories that I cared about, like, yes, obviously, I was 11 when Harry Potter came out. Of course, I cared deeply about Harry Potter as a child. This is the one I still care about. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the one I reread these books on average once a year. Um, my most recent outing, I listened to them on audio, which was delightful. It, the audiobook, um, I cannot say enough good things about. Full cast, just truly pleasant. There are moments in these books where I will just be going about my day and I will think about them and mm -hmm. then just start weeping. Like, I think about and cry over Lee Scoresby maybe a couple times a month. Like, I'm not... <laughs> that is I, not an exaggeration. <laughs> I was thinking about how... Uh, so I, I just saw for this podcast the 2007 movie version. And that movie has many flaws. Uh, one thing that's not a flaw is Lee Scoresby, uh, played by and the amazing Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott. who is doing a, a closer adaptation to the book than Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing in this show. Don't get me wrong, I love Lin-Manuel uh, Lin Miranda's version. Um, but the fact that you, you have both Sam Elliott and Lin-Manuel Miranda, and in both versions, I'm just in love with this character, and Hester, his uh, rabbit demon, just tells you, like, this is a great character. Uh, and then his ending is so sad. I'm pretty sure Marin did not know what was going to happen to him. Oh, uh, no. So, like, watching watching that ending in the show was just like, I was like, oh, my God, wait, no, this is what's going to happen. I don't think you know this. <laughs> or, no, like, that, remember it. Yeah, so in the, in the show adaptation, they follow the second book pretty closely, which is a bit of a departure because I think the first season took a little bit more liberties for mm -hmm. good or ill. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, his his noble sacrifice at the end, like the episode started and I just started weeping yeah. like I was a goner. <laughs> um, but yes. So the point is, these books have always been important to me. These books taught me like. It gave me sort of a structure for caring about some of the things that I care very deeply about. Mm. Um, one of the things that is a very big theme in these books is questioning um questioning in general but like questioning authority questioning mm -hmm. your reality like mm -hmm. the importance of kind of taking responsibility for your own um not actions but like your own story your, I guess? your, your own role in the world 
Yes. Um, he, uh, Philip Pullman is frequently described as an atheist, a term that doesn't always, I don't think he necessarily agrees with. Um, he feels very much like a humanist to me. Um, well, so I sent Pete about five different interviews with Philip <laughs> Pullman um, because I was doing some reading about just his opinions about his writing. And one of them is a an interview with I, I did not do my due diligence on who was giving the interview, but it is clearly someone of faith. Yeah, you're talking about the higher places. Um, yeah, the high profiles. Which for interview. a hot second, I thought was a, a weed publication. And then I was like, oh, it's probably a Christian publication. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but he did do, let's see if I can find the quote. That was um, an excellent, uh, excellent interview. And uh, I think the, the writer said, uh, at the top that Pullman himself said that that was one of his more favorite interviews to like have read later, like once it was edited and transcribed and all the rest. Uh, yeah. So he says after being interrupted or after his answer kind of being assumed by the interviewer, Pullman says, can I elucidate my own position as far as atheism is concerned? I don't know whether I'm an atheist or an agnostic. I'm both depending on where the standpoint is. The totality of what I know is no more than the tiniest prick of light in an enormous encircling darkness of all the things I don't know, which includes the number of atoms in the Atlantic Ocean, the thoughts going on through the minds of my next door neighbor at this moment, and what is happening two miles above the surface of the planet Mars. In this illimitable darkness, there may be God, and I don't know because I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um. And I, I really think that, that that was one of the more illuminating comments of his to me because I think a lot of what his Dark Materials is about is about the stuff that we don't know. And it's so interesting to think about the fact that he is very staunchly, if you know whether he wants to call himself atheist or agnostic, he does not believe in God. Um, and I would almost argue that his dark materials gives you a very strong argument for finding God in everything. Yes. It's, yes. It's a very like God is in the rain kind of moment from V for Vendetta. <laughs> One of the um, other uh, articles you sent was about um, pan psychism. The idea that uh, all, all matter has consciousness, um, which is mm -hmm. a fascinating idea that I haven't grappled with too much, but it does give me an in to another pan phrase I love, which is pantheism, uh, which is God is in the rain. Every Everything is the divine. The divine is ineffable, and, and it is everything. Um, and I almost think that what Pullman is coming around, like, I think there's an argument to be made that that is kind of what he's saying. Like, there is no God because everything is God. Right. What he, what he is opposed to is not theism it is theocracy and, and not just yes. theocracy but he is against uh, and and he said this well in another uh, interview of like a single mindset um uh like a like a, whether that be religion or any other ism uh including rationalism or you know blind faith to science blind faith to to communism whatever it might be he's opposed to viewing every hammer or every everything in the world like a nail because you happen to have the one true hammer whatever that hammer might be yeah thinking that there's only one answer and then the harm that causes to others mm -hmm. because you are convinced you only have that one hammer um which actually segues very nicely to into reasons why the first movie failed <laughs> um so the first movie adaptation should have been brilliant you have a great cast you have great source material 
and it absolutely had all of its teeth pulled out from I think a very conservative fear that people would be mad that it's a pretty anti-religion property. Like the main antagonist in his dark materials is the church. Um, it's the magisterium in the book, but it, it is the religion. It, they are the spiritual advisors of this world. I mean, and it's no like in the universe of uh, in Lyra's world, the Catholic church had a reformation led by like John Calvin got rid of the Pope and became the theocracy of the planet. Like that's it. It is called the magisterium, but there are no bones about it, that it is a, the Catholic church going down a different path than what we have here and, and achieving dominance. So in, for the, for the original film, they strip all explicit references to any kind of religion away from it. The magisterium becomes a very generic kind of baddie. They're like fascist, like fascist light. Yeah. Um, and what I do believe, so it, it had all of that going against itself. So like to fans of the material, it was unrecognizable. And for people who were new to the property, it had no real hook mm -hmm. because the, the bad guys had no real discerning features. And um, neutering it did nothing to prevent the religious backlash because... Uh, a, you've got some people who are just going to be opposed to it regardless. And B, you had some people saying like, yes, the movie Ipso Facto is fine, doesn't raise our religious hackles, but it's going to be an in to get children to read the books. And that's the problem. Well, and let me tell you, I don't know how they could have end if even if they had I, been able to make movies two and three. I, I know. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that, like reading that new line was like concerned about the religious elements. It's like, my dudes. Did you read the other books? Did say, you read Lyra the third will book? literally kill God in right. the end. Right. Um, but anyway, what I what I firmly believe, I think that this movie could have overcome a lot of its flaws, uh, except that it ends like three <laughs> chapters too early. Yep. Yep. Uh, um, I <laughs> I just watched this the other night and I texted Martha as soon as I was done. I, I was cooking something that was time dependent as I was watching it. I had about 10 minutes to go on the, the roux I was making, and I clicked the, the Netflix just to see how much time was left in the movie. I'm like, great, 10 minutes. So right when Roger gets, you know, sacrificed by Ezreal to open up the gateway in the sky, uh, my roux will be done. And then two minutes later, cut to credits because the remaining 10 minutes of the movie were credits. Yes. And I was confused and unhappy. So this is what I think happened because they, they absolutely filmed that sequence because they used it in the trailer. Mm. Um, I think new line got real scared of ending the movie on what they perceived of being as being a downer note, which and I mean, legitimately a downer note. It kind of isn't though, because the book, the first book ends with Lyra and pan going through the, the, um, the bridge in the sky. Yes, but they've just experienced a great trauma and a great betrayal. It's a, it's a, right. I, I understand why they it's a heavy way to end a family film. They experience a great trauma, but it ends on this great note of hope that they're going to go and save the world and that Roger's death will not have been in vain. And instead mm -hmm. we get this very candy coated ending that in the context of the rest of the movie means nothing. It also literally ends with, with Lyra saying like the adults in my life, up to and especially Lord Azrael will fix everything. And I thought that was setting itself up for a very fun, you know, and by fun I mean horrible uh, betrayal five to eight minutes later 
uh, in this. Well, and it should have. <laughs> yes, it should have. Uh, also, this movie was cramming way too much into way short of... First off, like, it. not to say this movie should be three hours. It should not be three hours. You just need to cut a lot more. Um, Like, focus on some things, cut other things. It's fine. Uh, it just... Everything was just... It, it felt like filming the outline of the book rather than the book. Well, and I, I also think that there are many ways in which the adaptation did not understand its source material. Like, mm -hmm. the religious aspect aside, these books are also a pretty heavy meditation on how people deal with grief and suffering. Mm -hmm. And to remove that aspect of the story is like, well, now what are we even doing here? And, <laughs> and it's about growing up and like shouldering responsibilities that are challenging and unpleasant. And Ooh, we're about to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't think the movie hit that uh, mark either. Um, so that is about oh. as much time as I want to dedicate. Last, to last thing I'll say though. Okay. Um, the cast, flawless, impeccable. Insane. Weird yes. that Christopher Lee was in it for two seconds. Apparently that was something that New Line forced in, because uh, they're like, we got that sweet, sweet Lord of the Rings money, so, like, get Christopher Lee back in. Um, Who did he play? Some, like, Magisterium dude. He said, like, oh, oh Lyra's the, the prophecies of the witch and all that stuff. Um, there, That's there a really good Christopher Lee. Thank you. I didn't think it was. So I'm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, coming through my headphones, I thought it sounded pretty good. Right. Uh, the other thing is like, when I had read that Eva Green was cast as Seraphina Pekala, I'm like, oh, perfect. Eva Green is like the literal embodiment of a witch woman. So perfect. There was something going on with her hair that just made her look very not great as Seraphina Pekala. I was very don't disappointed. Let, don't let Bill hear you say that. Um. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> No, I, I think that that movie had potential. I And I just think that New Line got scared. Yeah. And Oh, yeah. Like, like, like they, got, they got scared, and so they neutered the material, and that still didn't matter because exactly what they were scared of happened anyway, because when you're making this material, you're gonna upset the religious right, and in America in 2007, that, you know, like, you either need to understand what you're doing from the get-go suck it up, put on your armor and take your blows or don't adapt the material. Um, I want to sidebar real fast to ask you a question. Um, mm -hmm. Speaking of American audiences being afraid of stuff they don't know. Mm -hmm. So there was, um, there were, it came up in a couple of the interviews, the scene in the third book where Lyra and Will confess their feelings to each other. Yes. The marzipan scene. Yes. What do you think happened in that scene? Are you talking about what do I think happened when the camera faded to black? Or are you saying what do I think was cut from the American version? Because apparently there was Both, a little bit I cut guess. from the American version. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I need to I need to test a hypothesis. OK, uh, what I think happened in the what I think was cut was some Lyra POV of feeling her feelings and, and hormones and sort of a explanation of her suddenly being like horny or whatever. Um, but from sure. a, from, from her perspective and, you know, American audiences hate the idea of, of female sexuality. Um, I guess I've never thought too hard about what happens in the fade to black. I'm going to guess go that they probably got to at least third base. Okay. But if not straight up had sex. Okay. I don't see, think it's off the table. The thing. I, I never read it that way. 
And I was talking to my sister about it once and she was like, oh yeah, of course they had sex. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know if it's just because the first time I read it, I was like, I had no concept of sex. Mm. I have never read that sequence. Like, obviously it is sexual, but I have never read it in terms of them actually having like full on legit intercourse. Right. And I just, it, I thought it was buck wild that that is a reading of it. Um, I am intensely curious to read the original UK version of this book now, though. Yes, same. Um, um, I, yeah, I, I guess I should it... say I've never thought too hard about it. And I would say them having sex is not off the table, but it's not necessarily what I think happened. See, I think that's too like I thought it was more innocent than that. OK, fair. Um, not that there's anything wrong with sex, right. obviously. I'm right. a very sex positive person, but I I th- have always read that as being like more like they're they're still children, and obviously that is the like fulcrum point of them becoming starting adults because they grow up and become adults. Their demons uh, don't change anymore, right? Which is the the marker in Lyra's world that somebody has like gone through puberty and like really crossed the threshold into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had just never, it had never occurred to me that that, that that was a potential reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I just think is very, very interesting. Okay. So the book of dust. <laughs> okay. I got so excited several years ago when I found out that Philip Pullman was writing another book, but I also got very trepidatious because mm-hmm. authors revisiting beloved worlds does not always work out the way that we want them to. Hold on. Name one other example from the world of children's fantasy literature where authors revisiting their worlds years later has had uh, has been bad. Just one other example. <laughs> no. <laughs> That is not this podcast. Um, but I thought that La Belle Sauvage was lovely. Mm-hmm. It is a much less complex book than his Dark Materials. It is a much more straightforward adventure story. But I think it absolutely felt right. It it um, felt it, it it was it felt lighter, but at the same time heavier. Um, so the book, so so La Belle Sauvage is about Malcolm, who is twelve, uh, who finds out that the nuns in the abbey or whatever religious building is in his town are protecting and watching out for an infant who is Lyra. Um, they are protecting her from forces that he is. I mean, he's twelve, so he kind of doesn't understand, but he sort of starts to learn about them as they start encroaching on her space and safety. And then Oxford floods massively <laughs> with a crazy biblical flood. Yes, um, and he takes Lyra to safety in his boat, La Belle Sauvage, with the um, slightly older uh, barmaid. W- wasn't she a barmaid? I'm entirely blanking on her name. Oh, like which is a waitress. Yeah, oh, like daughter someone, oh, of the tavern uh, keeper. Well, the I thought the tavern keepers were his parents. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so she works at the the tavern that he that his parents own. Um and they run into some magical beings and have some shenanigans and at the end of it Lyra is saved. 
is safe and is surrendered to Oxford, um, where she lives until the opening events of His Dark Materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book also serves as sort of a doorway to teaching you some of the larger political stories and themes that Pullman introduces in the Book of Dust. Um, I, I would say that his focus is less about religious organizations in the Book of Dust and more about bureaucratic. Are you talking about like Oakley Street? Yeah, and the um, just sort of the environment yes. that Oakley Street is in response to. Well, he in in one of the the interviews you sent out, and and we should post the links to these uh, interviews uh, in the podcast. Um, he had uh, Pullman had the comment of grappling with the idea of like he is an ardent supporter of democracy, but sometimes you might need to use on or anti-democratic means to support democracy against people who are equally on or anti-democratic. Uh, and that's sort of what Oakley Street is. They're very much like a an MI6 kind of, uh, but like a scrappy. Uh, it, it feels very like spy versus spy. Um, and that, you know, has obviously thorny uh, philosophical implications for people who think that that stuff should not be done or necessary or what have you. Um, and then in the secret Commonwealth, oh, uh, which, I'm gonna, oh I'll, sorry. I'll stop you right there. One of the other things that the Bell Savage begins to show, and then that becomes much, much bigger in the secret Commonwealth is dysfunctional human demon relationships. Uh, the villain in La Belle Savage, who I thought was a little too, um, one of my biggest critiques with it, really evil, not that just, uh, uh, impossible to kill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, flat armor? Yeah. Uh, is is someone who, like, routinely beats his hyena demon. Uh, and that tells you a lot about the person if they are beating their own demon. Like, they, they clearly hate themselves and, and all the rest of it. But, like, this is the first time we're really showing dysfunctional, like, deeply dysfunctional human-demon relationships, which then becomes an enormous component of the secret commonwealth. Uh, well, and I will tell you, the world building in his Dark Materials was so effective that I found the sequences of Bonneville um, abusing his own demon to be viscerally upsetting. Oh, yes, absolutely. The idea, like, what? No, how can you do that to your own demon, to yourself, your heart? But I also see, yes, it was very upsetting, but also because I was reading it as an adult, I kind of got it. Yes. Like, that, in. In La Belle Sauvage, it is, I think, pretty brilliantly done because I am both deeply upset by it, but also I'm like, oh, it's because he hates himself. Like, right, been right, there. Right. <laughs> um, it's it's like, what if me on my worst day, but all the time. But all the time. Yeah. And, and it works there because it is, yeah, both of those things. It is both, like, incredibly gut-wrenchingly horrible and also gut-wrenchingly like sympathetic almost yeah he's as you said he's one-dimensionally evil and then as i was saying he's literally unkillable um but he's sympathetic is the wrong word but like you're like this is a broken dude empathetic okay empathy without sympathy 
or understanding without excuses. Yeah, yeah. Like he he is broken and you're like, man, you're broken. That sucks. Also, stop doing that. <laughs> cool motive still murder. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um but yes, which segues into the Book of Dust. So at a at a point in the Amber Spyglass, Lyra and her demon Pan become separated. Like normally a person and their demon cannot be physically too far away from each other because they are like the same flesh. Mm-hmm. Same soul. Yeah. Not, not the same flesh. That's the distinction. Uh, witches have the ability to do so. And Lyra, it is an ability that she gains through much hardship and a scene that is another one where I will just start thinking about it and weeping. That scene uh, was one. <laughs> I was like, what I say, 11 or 12. And I, I distinctly remember reading that scene and just being like, what? It's horrible. It's, it's so. Um, ugh. And one of the things that the secret Commonwealth sets out to do is really exploring the depths of the trauma that Lyra and Pan have caused each other. Um, because even though they are reunited at the end of his dark materials, you know, we, we come to understand that there has been sort of a lasting broken trust between them, um, which he touches on in the Amber spyglass. Like there, there is, there are a few sentences where, um, you know, Pan is horribly hurt and betrayed by this, but also understands why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the secret Commonwealth starts to kind of plumb how deeply this has scarred both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that way, I think it's a pretty effective exploration of trauma and PTSD. However, I don't necessarily like the way that Pullman goes about it. <laughs> It felt so I I think I liked the secret commonwealth more than you did. Um but that's because I was very I I was intrigued and 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 interested in the ideas he was playing with some of which are that Lyra is being um enraptured by these two authors whom have very different opinions but also clearly Pullman makes them out to be um uh problematic opinions at best and and whom pan specifically says like they're destroying your creativity and everything and and they're bad um and pullman clearly feels that way about both of them and both authors like more than any of his other books the secret commonwealth very much feels like philip pullman talking to the current era that he's writing in uh, I, I know that, like, you know, his concern about organized religion and that single lens way to look at things um, permeates all his works and is also, unfortunately, deeply relevant, even from the 90s. Um, but this felt very much like we're we're grappling with a, I don't know, like a, a, a problem amongst the educated elite, the problem amongst... Uh, just a a epistemological like crisis in Western democracy, uh, a, a love of Ayn Randian objectivism. Um, it, it felt very much like he's trying to grapple with current intellectual trends. Um, For me, it has a whiff of, and I'm not saying this is definitively what he mm-hmm. had an intention of, but mm-hmm. I think that there's evidence to support it. It had a whiff of. I don't understand these kids these days. I I thought that too. 
And I don't, these ideas are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> uh, let me find the quote. Um, so in the New Yorker article, in the New Yorker interview, uh, the, the interviewer starts, uh, she, meaning Lyra, is back in the secret commonwealth and she's 20 years old. It's a shock, honestly, to read about her because she's troubled, she's surly, she's depressed. She's not at all the confident heroine we remember from his dark materials. And Pullman responds, well, she's growing up. She's an adult. I don't use the word depressed. It's a rather depressing word. <laughs> Melancholy. I think at one point Malcolm's demon refers to her as bearing the mark of Le Soleil. Les Soleil Noir de la Melancolie, which I am sure I'm mispronouncing because I don't speak French, uh, which is a quotation from a poem by Gerard de Nerval, which I like very much. She's marked by melancholy, and the reason for that, and probably one of the results of that, is she and Pantaleman have suffered a rupture. So part of that, fine, like dealing with the trauma of being separated from Pan, but he starts by pointing out that she's growing up. And there is a sentiment that kind of comes up in a lot of these interviews that this is something that people just deal with when they're growing up. And I did not care for that. I thought it more, uh, and, and this is, I take everything you're saying and I will just provide an alternative take without necessarily yes, please, disagreeing. Please I think it's more of the sense of, not that everyone feels this way growing up, but that some or possibly even many people do. Um, exposure to new ideas, changing environment, changing expectations leads for some people to a, uh, a disattachment, a melancholy, a whatever it might be. Different people respond to it in different ways. Um, in a world where you have your own demon... If you were a, a normal person going through this world, you would have your demon and they'd be with you all the time and you will have gone through the exact same experiences so you can more easily maybe cope or overcome these challenges. Whereas with Lyra and Pan, they've had the rupture, they've had the, the psychic trauma of that, uh, and then even more so, they went on different adventures without each other for a spell in the Ember Spyglass. Um, so I, I could see that the... Like, the demon support system that is there for most people isn't there in the same way for Pan and Lyra. And that makes her... Maybe maybe it makes it more likely that they would develop along different tracks. Because it does seem that the two academics in, this, in the Secret Commonwealth are very popular amongst the youths. Um, and amongst... Uh, not even the youths. Uh, just sort of throughout culture. Um... And I mean, it, it, he pretty specifically calls out them being popular with the like college. Yeah, kids. I, I will say I definitely got a, a vague whiff of like kids these days is um, um, but I also like it was through a feedback mechanism of like not just kids these days, but the vogue in academia these days uh, because Lyra and all her friends are academics. Um, and I, I was reading it at around the same time where it was very popular amongst the, uh, you know, uh, New York Times opinion writing set to decry, uh, you know, cancel culture on campus and all that sort of stuff. And obviously this is not that, but it has sort of a similar feel of an older guard grappling with changing norms and tastes 
but at the same time, I read uh, one of these interviewers compared one of the academics to a Dawkins type, uh, and I thought it was more like a Randian objectivist type um, of just like raw rationalism at the expense of everything else. Um, and so I, I, I kind of saw it as Pullman railing, not so much against kids these days, but against like specific popular academic ideas that are true in in our world as well as Lyra's. Um, and obviously reading some of these interviews, seeing his his concern about a, a, a single lens in which to view the world, that makes a lot more sense of what he's sort of concerned about here and, and what he's trying to sort of draw attention to. Yeah, and I think part of my issue with this book is it does not feel as, like, it does not feel as clear or as lucid as his Dark Materials. This is... Like, definitely a muddied muddled book and i think that's on purpose it felt like he had it felt like he had a lot of feelings about his own work which is fine i i think that people should feel things and the secret commonwealth is kind of him trying to work out those feelings in real time mm. mm -hmm. um i also just it was very hard for me to get over the fact that lyra and pan spend most of this book apart yes i'm never super fond of when books or stories break up a team like i tend to think that characters do better when they have their teammates to like exist around i'm this is certainly a book and and this it is entirely fair to read this as a knock i'm not intending it as such but i will understand if you're like nope that's that's a negative uh, this feels like a book that I really want to hold off serious judgment on until I read the third one. And that also bothers me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And like I said, for you, I know that's a big like that's a problem. It should stand on its own. The ending. Well, I don't think I don't think the middle book in a series needs to stand on its own. Like, <laughs> but the end of this is so abrupt, like literally nothing gets resolved in this book. And it's like 600 pages long. So that also kind of bothered me that we we do a lot of things in this book and none of them are conclusive. And also where he ends it feels so arbitrary. Like, I don't know that there, I mean, unless book three plays out wildly differently than expected, like... I kind of felt like there was no reason we could not have our Lyra Pan reunion at the end of this book. I do not disagree with that in the least. Uh, it was very frustrating that they did not reunite properly. Um, because we're we're presumably like one paragraph away from that. And I mean, the the easy thought is, well, what if we're not like what if there is more to their reconciliation? But it was still like I don't appreciate being made to feel that way. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Um, you know, for such a philosophical and contemplative book, that felt like a really cheap narrative trick to me. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. What has been, I'm, I'm going to segue rather dramatically here. Yeah, do. What has been your thoughts on, uh, so in both this and in La Belle Sauvage, we're dealing, like, the secret commonwealth refers refers to, like, magic-y stuff. Things that, that can't be explained through rational means, the fairy folk, and all the rest of it. Um, obviously, that's always been sort of present in Lyra's world. Like, you've had the witches, and you've had, like, cliff ghasts and armored bears, which, um, 
the fact that they were called ice bears throughout the entire movie, uh, 2007 movie, drove me up the wall. I'm like, call them <laughs> Panzerbjorn. If you can't trust your audience to scan Panzerbjorn, call them armored bears. Ice bears? What is this? Of course, they're they're, they're polar bears. Of course, they live on the ice. Um, <laughs> uh, no amount of Ian McShane voice acting will save you from the fact that you're called an ice bear. Uh, uh, you want to you want to try that one again? Ian McShane? It's is is Ian McShane is Yofar uh, Ragnarsson. I might have oh, uh, messed up his name. He's, he's the evil bear king. Whose name they also changed. That sucks. I'm like, Ian McKellen plays Eoric. <laughs> right. Yeah, Ian McKellen <laughs> is Eoric. Uh, and Ian McKellen is great. But Ian McShane, I can listen to him read the dictionary. Um, and it was very sad that I'm like, oh, you're so good. But not in this. You're just doing nothing. Um, anyway, so like all of that was sort of present, but in low key ways in Lyra's world. Um, but in the Book of Dust, it's much more present. Like Malcolm is saved by literally the god of the River Thames, <laughs> like uh, and meets a, a fairy queen uh, who also like protects him. It's very much more foreground in the Secret Commonwealth. She meets uh, like Lyra meets like, I don't know, was it like a genie or a golem, like some sort of um there, there's so there, there's a lot more like spirits um so i guess what what's your thought on sort of bringing those elements more to the foreground in this series it certainly makes her denial of them wild very frustrating <laughs> um because yeah the part of the conceit in this is that she is doubting her own recollection of the things that happened to her during the his dark materials books and if this book had been devoid of fantastical elements or like less you could maybe but i i think i i think it the the problem is that it becomes like pan keeps talking about how like her imagination is gone and it's like this is this is rewriting history which is a trauma response that we can examine and talk about but reinforcing how incredibly interwoven in this world those fantastical elements are and then having a character just be like oh but i don't think seraphina pecala this woman who was so important to me in my childhood i don't really think she existed like that was wild to me so like i guess my i was a little torn on the introduction of all the magical elements in in la belle sauvage i i rode with it because i'm like all right this is what we're doing i don't know if i love it but okay um but it does seem throughout like they're always on the margins of society and lyra is someone who did not like obviously she had all her adventures in the his dark materials with people from the margins of society the egyptians and the witches and all the rest but after she came back, she lived in Oxford, like very much not in the margins of society. So I, I can see why in those halls, she would have no exposure to the secret commonwealth, to, to the fantastical elements. And I think that part of the book is that as she goes searching for Pan, she encounters all these new uh and creatures uh, beings um which are new to her and new to the audience and begin to break down the super rationalistic even demons aren't real nonsense of one of the uh, authors whom she is like ensorcelled by so i i see it as sort of a a 
like the best way to in to break her free from the spell of these like postmodernist rationalist authors is to have her experience things that are like her, her like her not just her memories but her current lived experiences can't square with what they're saying so either her lived experiences are wrong or like her current uh existence like what she is currently observing is wrong or these writers that she is is you know devoted to uh, are wrong um and like that's an interesting tension because again we're living in a in a world right now of like a a crisis of of what is truth and what is you know like friggin' QAnon conspiracy theorists in in the House of Representatives like these people have access to classified documents and yet still at least publicly claim to believe in a, a raging conspiracy theory they claim that half of their coworkers are like child abducting cannibals. That was not an angle that I had previously considered. Um, I don't know. I just, I did not, I did not super love the fact that this character that I had gone on this journey with, mm. like her central conflict is, is this life changing journey that I got to go with her on? Did that actually happen? Right. Like, like it, that was... is such and and again, I, I think this is a feature, not a bug. It's just not a feature that I loved. Right. I'm, I'm totally willing to say that like, this is, this was Pullman's intent with this book, but I'm also free to say this is a conceit that did not work for me because it felt, it feels by design, like a betrayal to me. And mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. like how that feels. Absolutely. Um, also should say, and I, I was saying this off air, I have not got to talk about this book yet. So a lot of my ideas <laughs> are, uh, uh, <laughs> I wanted to, to have a lot of people read this book and then I could go and hang out at a bar with them and we could talk over a couple drinks over a couple hours and then a pandemic hit. So, uh, this is the first time I really get to talk about it with someone who has also read it. So I'm very glad that we're able to do this and I'm very sorry that you are my, uh, sounding board. <laughs> That's okay. It's also been a bit since I've read it. So hard same. Yes some of the details i may I, be i would have to imagine that we both got it approximately the day it came out and then read it and that's the only time which would have been a year and like two three months ago yeah pretty much yeah um but yeah so i like i said i i think that this was his intent it just wasn't an intent that i enjoyed yes yes and that's entirely reasonable there were as i was reading it i was torn between the thoughts of like this is interesting ideas do I like this? I don't know well, if I like it, but I like, I, I don't know if I like the story. I was interested in the ideas. It's certainly a book that I grappled with a lot more than I thought I would. Well, and as we are talking about this, I mean, we started the top of the show with me giving you a lecture on how formative and important the first three books were to me. And I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons I in taking the story so personally mm -hmm. is because it feels like he's telling me that my, like that the way that I lived this story as a child is wrong or mm. like less. In, I, 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 I take I'm, it as the opposite. I think that we're supposed to, I think that we, the readers are supposed to agree with pan and, be frustrated with Lyra because I think Pullman agrees with Pan and is frustrated oh, with Lyra. I think so too, but that doesn't mean that I'm not taking it intensely personally watching mm. Lyra go through all of this mm -hmm. 
And this is all compounded by the fact that there is no resolution at the end of this book. Yes. Yes. So I, we are left with those feelings of uncertainty as she kind of starts to dig herself out of this darkness. But I have to wait for the next book before any of that like satisfactorily resolves. Yes. And so not having that, like not having any kind of positive ending to hold, like well, not, the, not, know, the best, not knowing where it's I going. Mean, the best you can say for the ending is that Lyra is, is starting to pull herself out of this darkness. Like in yes. her, um, as she is off to look for pan, she's like, she is starting the journey towards like re remembering. I was about to say rediscovering. And I think remembering is actually, I, I prefer that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like remembering who she is and what sh- the things that she loves. And right. she's, she's Lyra Silvertongue for a reason. Yeah. Like being a creature of curiosity. Um, it's just all really right now. Something that I have to hope is coming in the next book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do we want to spend any more time talking about the HBO miniseries? I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, it's real good. Um, I thought that the first season, I I thought the second season was an improvement on the first season. Agree. Um, but I do think the first season did some very important, the first season, they take more liberties with the material. Like they start mixing in the second book a little bit earlier, which they they have all the will stuff, which like you need to do. Oh yeah. The third book is about to get buck wild. I can't. uh, Okay. We, we both talked about our, um, mild sadness about the fact that they had an HBO budget, but they didn't have like a game of Thrones HBO budget. So there are far too few demons. Um, I don't know how in the <laughs> I don't know how in the world they're going to do the planet of the uh, I can never pronounce their name so I'm going to go Mufalada, uh, which is not what they're called. Mufa. 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 Okay. Well, I, I I cannot imagine what's going to happen when they have an entire <laughs> race be... of wheel elephants attacked it's by giant bird so boats. <laughs> And in that same season, you need the world of the dead and the harpies. And you also need the war between the Republic of Heaven and the kingdom of heaven. And you need the murder God. Like, and also a war. (laughs) I mean, honestly, killing God is the lowest key thing that happens in that book. Right, right. Like you Um, need harpies. You need, you need angels. (laughs) Uh, And there were like, there was a little bit of angel work, but um, actually one, one thing I really enjoyed about some of the last few episodes were, Mary Malone, once she went into Sitagatse, um, Chitagatse. Yeah. They frequently framed her on one side of the screen or another in a way that made it seem like there should be another character in that scene. And I thought that was an excellent way to portray the fact that she was being protected by an angel. Not just an angel. Is it a gay, a gay angel? I was going to say, is it Baruch? Yes. All right. Wait, Baruch is the one protecting, uh, Mary Malone? No, I, no, uh, cause. No, it's. Balthamus and Baruch are both there, aren't they? I thought that they protected Will and they like they they protect Will. Cuz Will <sighs> one of them has to go back to explain to Ezra what happened and the other one goes with Will to get well, Lyra. But they're in so they're in they're in Chitagatse. So they I think they are protecting Mary until she can get to 
the Mulefa country. Okay. Because and something then, is protecting her from the specters, and I right. think it's Baruch and Balthamus. I, I just assumed it was Third Angel. There is no Third Angel. Well, there's there's no named Angel because we never meet them because they're just protecting Mary Malone, and then they go. I was gonna say it also leave. kind of doesn't matter, right? Um, but yes, the the angels are the best. Well, and, and more importantly, uh, Sophie Okanedo is is doing the voice of the leader of the angels, and <gasps> she is fin- like she's she's been doing the voice for. Um, uh, the leader of the angels who has a great name that I can't think of. Um, in she, she did the voice already in season two, which means hopefully she will be portraying that angel in person in season three. Hopefully. Although in person, it makes me wonder how they are going to visualize them because even in the books, they're pretty ethereal. Mm hmm. Um, I love that we live in a world where HBO is actually going to adapt a <laughs> to <book>. murder God. <laughs> um, yes, but yes, the angels are wonderful. Um, well, and, 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 and the, is... ga- the Gala Vespians, like book three is is buck wild in terms it is of some wild stuff. thinking of the HBO again, the budget for this season three. It's just like, all right. Season one, cool. We got steampunk world and iron bears and uh, and armor bears and demons running around. And we can make all that happen. Season three, <laughs> the chariot of heaven, tiny little galavespians riding on dragonflies, the world of the dead, wheel riding alien things. And we still have to pay Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Fingers crossed. I truly love the actress they have playing um, Mary. Yes. Yes, she's lovely. She's not how I pictured her, but that almost instantly was replaced with like, well, it's not what I had in my mind, but I'll but but it's a good it's a good pick. Well, and I think what really makes it work is um, the added the added scenes in Chittagatse where she meets up with the orphans. Mm hmm. And how maternal she is towards them. I don't like in my head, she was younger, I think. But those moments, I don't think would have been as effective if she had been played by a younger actress. Yes. I also I thought that the orphans at the beginning, I was worried that they weren't because in my mind, they were very vicious in the book. Um, And they were less. They're pretty vicious in the show. They they felt less vicious until, until suddenly they turned vicious. But then having them like turn back into like, oh, right. Yeah, your kids who need a, a parental figure uh, with Mary Malone was very effective. Um, also, I'm really glad that we got the uh, 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 Lady Mormont uh, yep. in the show. <laughs> I think the kid who plays Will is brilliant. Yes, he's very good. And obviously, we cannot say enough good things about uh, Daphne Keen, who plays Lyra. Uh she's exceptional i would say yes in the second season i wasn't i i had concerns in the first season she comes across as very reactive and i tend to think Mm. of lyra as a very proactive character um but that's hard to to really pin down on whether that's the actress or the material that they have given her yeah that's that's fair yeah. 
I I also think it's like it's it's a very challenging thing to convey because so so much of the oh, books are, yeah. like there's so much interiority and like the demons allow you to do some of the interiority outside and that's in the books too which was which is what makes them such a great like plot device mm-hmm. <laughs> invention whatever um but even then there's still a lot of like interiority that needs to be conveyed uh before we wrap up because it feels like we're in the wrapping up territory the one thing i want to the, the the one more the last idea that I would like to put forth to us is why has this material been so hard for people to adapt? Um, but I guess that's not really a fair question. And also, we kind of answered it when we talked about why the movie, the first movie, it's, failed. So uh, I mean, I think, al- also like everything we we're talking about with the amber spyglass, like it's going to be crazy expensive to like the first one. You can you as a studio with money can wrap your head around how you would go about adapting it. It's it's different. It's it's fantasy, but it's contained. You're going to spend some money on the Iron Bears and, you know, some of the demons. And that's kind of the big, big money sucks. By the time we get to the third book, it's just like fortresses of adamant and and all the rest of it is the, the least of your concerns. Um, plus the whole, you know, Republic of Heaven, let's go murder God side of things <laughs> makes it yeah, both let's a... Cut this, let's cut this out. We've already talked about yeah, this. Yeah, it's, 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 I... it's financially difficult and also uh, conceptually difficult. Um, we, I'm, I am certain we have talked about this in previous episodes. Uh, what do you think your demon is? Uh, my demon has always... Well, that's not true. My demon has changed um, based on, you know where I have felt in life Uh, for a very long time. uh, He was a crow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently, I've been feeling a lot of very deep kinship with my guinea pigs. Uh, I was uh... (laughs) Uh... Uh, realistically, realistically, I I think that um, so for for about five years or so, I owned a green cheek conure who is a little, oh, little green bird him. with yeah. gray cheeks and a bright red tail. And I think she got about as close to what my demon actually would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, little smart thing, not terribly like not beautiful in the way that tropical parrots can be, but too smart for her own good. Cheeky little cheeky little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Real chatty. Uh, and a super, super snuggle bug, but with the people that she liked. <laughs> mm, sure, sure. <laughs> and you? I think it's a magpie, but that's, I, I'm always torn between, is that an accurate representation of me, or is that a idealized, like, you know, nobody wants their, their, uh, a demon to be a, a rat or a snake or what have you um ah, unless well, you're from the magisterium i was gonna say if you're my husband <laughs> right, right, yeah i i, I was good i was going to say rats definitively and then like actually i know that bill's had uh, quite a few rats and they're kind of great creatures um like That's a spider smart. a spider yeah you don't um, work for the magisterium <laughs> <laughs> right exactly which is one thing that i'm a little bummed about in the show adaptation is like all the magisterium demons are like devil creatures like you know and they're always like on their faces. Right. It's like bugs and spies and flyers and snakes and lizards. It's like, yeah, okay, we get it. They're evil. Um, Pullman had an interesting thing in one of the interviews of just like, if if he had thought about it some more, had some more time, maybe he would have thrown in a good priest in there too, just to show that it's not all 
Just like the good guys have shades of gray, Lord Ezreal is pretty not but awesome. But I, I thought kind of, when I, I read it, I always felt that, like, I don't know, I... <sighs> I think it would have diluted his message to have a good priest in there. Like, I think part of it is that the power of the magisterium is inherently corrupting mm, and monolithic. Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of feel like it's an all cops are bad situation where if there are good priests, they probably don't last very long in the magisterium. Or more importantly, like we're talking about the highest level magisterium people like the good priests are there, like as the county you know, like, like Pullman's grandfather, like just some random county clergy dude. Uh, but like if you're making your way up to being on the oblation board. Uh, you're probably you're, not yeah. a very great person. Yeah, yeah. You probably have a lizard as your uh, your demon. Yeah, that comment or that question <clears throat> I thought was very indicative of the fact that he was being interviewed by a person of faith. Oh, was that in that interview? Yeah. Okay. One like it, it like to me it makes sense like if we're talking about the entire world at large yeah there are probably good magisterium <laughs> officials but like in your book where they're the bad guys you probably need them to be the bad guys and you don't need to take time out of the story to show me right the good people right but in, in the in the show like Fra Pavel who's like the alethiometer reader could have had like a dog or something like you don't need to give him a fly or whatever I, I have no idea what he has but like. Is Fra Pavel the one that goes after them in the third book? Oh, maybe? No. Can't remember. If it is, his demon's a beetle. I remember that part. <laughs> uh, who? Oh, shoot, maybe that is him. Because he would need to read the alethiometer to uh, find out where they were, probably. Well, in the in the show, Fra Pavel has a frog demon, so I'm guessing it's a different assassin they send. I, I mean, assuming that it doesn't matter. Yep. The the assassin that the Magisterium sends to kill Lyra has a beetle for a demon. Mm -hmm. I remember that because there is a moment where Balthamos captures the beetle and it's <laughs> and very upsetting because the beetle is biting him there are there are scenes of these books that i remember like better than what i ate for breakfast this morning and, and balthamos was the forever angel and baruch was the human who became an angel correct yes all right cool so he's he he a little loved, stronger baruch who he loved and he will never see again yes we have to end this podcast before <laughs> I start crying. <laughs> All right. Well, I have terrible news for you. You have to do the outro unless you want me to do it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I think we are going to quit while we're ahead on this one. Uh, thank you all for your time in listening to us uh, work out some of our uh, feelings and emotions about this forever property. Um, oh, what order does this stuff go in, Pete? Do we do our plugs first? Oh, whatever order you want. Cool. Uh, if you would like to follow our show, check us out on social media on all the places at DYDYH podcast. Uh, you can also listen to our sister show, Love Ya, which updates on the same feed on alternating Wednesdays. Uh, on that show, I dissect teens teen movies and rom-coms with Pete's wife, Marin. 
Uh, we just did a very fun episode about the third and final to all the boys I've loved before movie on Netflix. Uh, and our next movie will be a Netflix rom-com original called set it up. Um, you can find me on social media at Magical Martha, including the newsletter that I write at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha, which I update approximately whenever I feel like it. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O 3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Uh, and for our next episode... Where can, we, uh, where can we find the show on Twitter or listen, social media? I, I started this segment by saying you could follow us on social media at DYDYH Podcast. Hmm. All right, fair. <laughs> if you did, mea culpa. And if you didn't, uh, here it is right there. <laughs> uh, our next episode is episode 99 Ooh. and is also just about a year is going to drop almost exactly a year from when we locked down a year ago. Yep. Oh yep. my God. Yep. Uh, Super so fun. We, we are taking this theme of isolation and maybe insanity uh, to its natural conclusion. TikTok has already brought us there. We are going to be talking about sea shanties and related pop culture. Uh, I am assigning the 2019 Amazon Prime original Blow the Man Down. And Pete, what homework should people enjoy on your end? I am taking this uh, topic as an excuse to assign maybe one of the top 10 movies of all time. Certainly one of the top 10 dad movies of all time. I was Ma going to say that's a really <laughs> strong statement that I don't know that I can endorse. <laughs> Master and Commander colon the far side of the world. Uh... If, it's certainly one of the best boat movies of all time. Yes, fine. <laughs> but <laughs> A great Star Trek movie as well. <laughs> uh, and um, for some background information and reading, uh, search Wellerman on TikTok um, to find the latest musical fads sweeping our nation's teenagers. <laughs> Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed.